Tom Lorenzo. And this is the Pop Style Opinion Fest. Hello, kittens. Welcome back to another edition of the PSO. I am the T and your T Tom Fitzgerald. I'm here with the Lou and your T Lorenzo because my lovely husband. Hello. I just try and jazz that up every time each I week. Know. Make it sound a little bit different. Uh, we're back. We took a, a week off after the a week off from podcasting, and we thank you for your patience on that. But, um, right. Someone asked, and I just want to clarify, it's not a bi-weekly podcast anymore. It's just sometimes we get very busy. Uh, things get a little crazy. Yeah, I mean, no complaints here. We are yeah. jazzed because we just had, September was just the busiest month right, we've right. had since before. Everything happened at the same the time, pandemic all the red hit. Yeah. And not all, it wasn't just, uh, you know... And this is not none of this is complaints. This is just simply explaining why we took a week off. Um, it wasn't just that we had a massive onslaught of red carpet coverage for our site, but uh, we had three pieces to file for Cosmopolitan that week over a 10 day period, right? Actually, it was just a lot. and it was just a lot. It was just a lot of work. And by the time we hit the finish line last week on a Friday, we were, and that was the one thing we've done this a lot in the past year or so post award show. That week when the podcast comes up, we both say the same thing. We're like, let's not do a podcast about, you know, the Emmys. That right, ju- right, that, right, because right. we just did 60 posts on the Emmys. And we've been very busy uh, with our bathroom. Bathroom disaster. Bathroom disaster. We live over uh, retail. And uh, there was a leakage issue with the retail uh, space below us. And uh, it wasn't us. We weren't doing anything wrong. And it turns out there was this thing with our pipe. They had to cut a big hole in our wall, which is fun. (laughs) Right when that happens. And this all happened roughly at the same time that we decided to do some major. It wasn't a remodel, but it was definitely a refresh of our bathroom, which required a lot of. Uh, replastering some walls, in fact, and stripping uh, t- 30 years of paint off a wooden shelf and replacing all of the accessories and hardware and the, and, like and the skim, towel rack. And skim and what? What is it? Skim? Skim coating yeah, the wall. Yeah, you did all that. I know. And uh, did some tile work, installed some tile, like a backsplash. and Everything. Uh, yeah, I mean, the bathroom has been transformed. And our, our poor tab hunter... Our little, very <laughs> sensitive, our giant cat, who was also very sensitive to any sorts of changes. He can't deal with any change. He couldn't deal with it. And he was attacking the other two cats, which is not like him, really. No, no, but he gets very stressed. He gets very stressed out. He's our special little boy. But he's wonderful, and we love him. And uh, he anyway, can't handle things at all. The bathroom looks amazing. We once had our power go out, and he hid under the bed. Have you ever heard of a cat afraid of the dark? Oh, come on. That's Tab Hunter. He's wonderful. Um. Anyway, so that has been consuming us, blah, blah, blah. But our bathroom looks, oh my goodness, Amazing. stunning. Yeah. The funniest thing, this is going to sound <laughs> really awful, I guess. <laughs> but when we um, redid our bedroom a year or two, oh, actually a couple of years back, we had a goal. And this might sound really weird, but our goal was let's make it look like a really nice five-star hotel room. Because right. it was a room that had... It was always going to have a desk in it because one of our offices always needed to be in the corner of a bedroom. And instead of making it look like we just shoved a desk in a corner, we wanted to integrate the whole thing. The way you you would walk into a hotel room that had a a really nice nice suite. A suite. Yeah. And we put a large flat screen TV in there and we put a... uh, a recliner, an old oh man God. recliner in there. But we really wanted the space, and it's the only p- room that in all of our, uh, in and all our 20 plus years of living together, it's the only room that we have where everything was coordinated, where we have 
matching lamps on matching nightstand. Because right, that right. kind of thing isn't our style normally. We like to have a mix of eclectic. Of everything, yeah. But we were like, let's let's do it the way I had a really, really nice and hotel room. And it does look like, like People a, have walked in and yes, said that. Yeah, they your were sister like, walked like in and was suite. like, oh my God. Yeah. And anyway, we wanted great. that because we knew we actually had spent years working in hotel rooms while doing things like going to, well, being on book tours or fashion week. Uh, fashion week. Like it was part of our work life at that point that we sort of translated it over to our decor. And again, when I was conceptualizing, we repainted the bathroom completely different color, like way outside our normal color range. And I, I had to convince Lorenzo to switch out all of the chrome accessories for bronze, like a dark brown bronze. And to get like a natural stone tile for the backsplash, like it was all going very brown in the bathroom. And part of the reason for that was because um, the tile, we weren't going to replace, we weren't doing a complete remodel. That's just not, neither one of us wanted that hassle. Um, And actually the fixtures are fine. The toilet, the sink, the tub, the tile floor, everything is fine, but it's all in beige, like in that biscuit beige. And for the longest time I could not, I was... I think we were decorating that bathroom as if it were white. So mm-hmm. the colors that we were choosing, the towels, and it never looked right. So everything went dark to contrast the beige towels. And when I was trying to explain all this to Lorenzo, because when you say, I want the bathroom to go dark brown, that's that's a hard sell. I said, picture it like a really nice bathroom in a really chic restaurant. <laughs> and that is essentially what our bathroom looks like right now, except it has a tub in it. Um it's all Edison light bulbs and it's all bronze fixtures and it's very old timey looking and there's a dark wood, you know, it's just a complete remodel. I think we were trying to do a sort of spa style bathroom and now it's way more of a, um, yeah, like a nice restaurant, our nice hotel bedroom and our nice restaurant bathroom. Anyway, that's too much to talk about our decor, but it has been, Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) Do you have a bus to catch? (laughs) All right. Let's talk quickly about, um, the celebrity story of the week. You are right. I rambled a bit much there. (laughs) No, I'm just teasing. Everyone thinks I'm the mean one, but I swear to God, that is so far from true. That it's true. I agree. (laughs) That I am the mean one. No, that that you're not the mean one. Yeah. I mean, in our private life, he calls me mother Teresa all the time because I am apparently so much more kind hearted than he is. Anyway, um, let's talk about Ellen Pompeo real yes. quick. And Why the reason not? I want to talk about Ellen Pompeo is because, okay, r- quick rundown Ellen Pompeo, star of Grey's Anatomy. She had a podcast that she launched, I believe, this week. Yeah. And she had Patrick Dempsey, her former co star, who has left the show on her podcast. And I guess they were trading war stories about being on Grey's Anatomy. And she told a story about when Denzel Washington was brought on to direct an episode. And back in 2016, that's a old that's an old story that yeah, she brought Yeah, well that's yeah. been on for like 18 right, right. years But or it's whatever. weird that she brought that out you know, like anyway. Uh yeah, and the whole but I'll tell you why we're bringing this up and I I won't linger on it too much because whatever, it's it's not worth the outrage. But so she's telling this story about uh, Denzel Washington and she's in the middle of a scene with a, an actor and she felt that the actor or I don't know if her char- she felt her character felt this way, because she sort of passed it off as an improv thing, where she threw out a line. She told the he was supposed to be apologizing to her, and she told the guy to look at her while he was talking to her, because he kept looking away. And I don't know if that was an improv, or if that was a direction on her part, but um, Denzel, who was directing that episode, took it as a direction and said, I'm the director here, don't direct the, the actors. 
she's telling this story. And so she's telling how her response to that was to say, motherfucker, who the fuck are you? This is my show. You don't even know where the bathroom is. And she told this story like it was some cool girl boss thing, like some empowering moment for her. And, uh, of course, this came out and it hit social media and it hit the, the, the entertainment media and it's become a bit of a kerfuffle. I don't know if she's apologized or made a statement yet, but she probably will soon. I don't s- think so. Soon. I, I haven't read anything yet, maybe. Um, here's the thing about... So, I, I, this came out and we were thinking about it and we tweeted once about it and, you know, as a, and I don't mean to sound, oh, we're so important, but that tweet wound up in like 10 articles about it. Right. I, I, and so... I was thinking about it last night, and I thought about when Tom Cruise had that blow-up last year on the set of Mission Impossible, and it was recorded, and people could hear him screaming and yelling at crew members because they had violated COVID protocols. Right. And he flipped out because—and they did. They shot all through the pandemic. There were all these scenes of them, like, wearing masks in between scenes and everything. They were supposed to be— uh, I think, um, quarantining together, whatever. Someone broke quarantine. Tom Cruise flipped out. It was a big kerfuffle. And at the time, I don't think we talked about it on this podcast, but I remember talking about it on social media. I don't want to say we defended him, but this was at the height of the pandemic. Right, people right, were right. freaking out. And I do remember making the point that of all the things for stars to freak out out about on sets, this is not one that I can really. This is not some prima donna moment. This is you're costing people's health. You're costing a million dollar, you know, a, yeah, a five hundred million right, dollar right, production right, exactly. like that. I'm not saying the level of abuse he was he was throwing at these people was necessarily warranted, but this is a little bit more understanding than some diva term. Right, and you're sending a horrible message, uh, you know, you're just giving a terrible uh, example of how to behave on a set. Right. You know, all that. I mean, it's it gets bigger than just... Right. Um, but... The, breaking I, the rules. I did think about this, because I was like, is this... Am I... Because I thought Ellen, this Ellen Pompeo story was com- horrible. I was like, she sounds like the biggest asshole in the world. This is awful. We tweeted to that effect. The worst thing about it was that She's so insulated from the world that she thought it made her sound cool. For, and I said this, forget about Denzel. Forget that she she was rude to Denzel Washington. Um, talking like that to any coworker on the job because you have right. a disagreement right, right. is like, and you thought that was cool? I'm not naive about how people act on sets. I And I have very limited time in the industry, but I did have a small amount, a short period of time in on movie sets um, after I graduated film school. And I do understand it is a high-tension environment, and we are talking about... Uh, I remember when the Tom Cruise thing came out and people were relating it to, like, human resources and this and that and the other thing, and I was like, you know, I don't mean to make excuses here, but this isn't an office job. When you're on a movie set, it's all technicians and creative professionals working on a huge product, you know, in this case. So the tension levels are very high, and the... The forgiveness of certain levels of mm-hmm. um, abuse, I guess, is, you know, whatever. But it shouldn't necessarily be excused when a guy does it and attacked when a woman does it. I will say, again, I don't think Tom Cruise was entirely out of line. And I don't think the two stories are comparable, but I felt like I needed to unpack this. Am I being unfair? You know, this is right, what you right, do right. when you write about culture. And, you know, you have to make sure. I was just saying to Lorenzo that... um 
I was listening to an old podcast from a couple, uh, like a year ago, actually, the other night to make sure that I wasn't contradicting something that I was about to say to, you know, that sort of thing. You're always constantly checking yourself on various things just to make sure that you are remaining consistent, that you cannot be tripped up and that you are, and I don't mean to say not being true to yourself, but you're just, as I said to Lorenzo, when you, your job is just spewing opinions day in and day out for 15 years, it could be very easy that you wind up spewing two completely contradictory opinions right. if you don't watch yourself. So um, it's just a way of checking yourself to keep yourself on the straight and narrow. And I did unpack this. Is this relatable to the Tom Cruise story? And only on a surface level, number one, she wasn't abusing crew members. She was being extremely disrespectful to um, someone who should rightly be considered in a superior position, not just because he's Denzel Washington, legendary, you know, Oscar winning actor, uh, but also in a, he is the director in that situation. Right. That is the director's job. Well, forget how important they are, or how, you know, how big they are in the industry. You are stepping on somebody else's, uh, job actually I exactly mean, you just yeah and being i mean he's directing yeah it. i mean he's the he's the director so he has the right to say you, you shouldn't be directing other people right um you, you don't do that no. um but she felt the need to but the thing these people have no filters i have no patience or empathy or anything you know, i totally inter- agree yeah towards celebrities anymore because these people <laughs> are so entitled and have oh, lorenzo you're in the wrong line of I work know, no no hey i'll talk about the, what they're wearing and, and and their performances but their personal lives and and misbehaviors and meltdowns i couldn't care less um my point is that these people have no filters no. whatsoever and they're totally and they insulated have, they have nobody to tell them that they're fucking up yeah i mean you tell me when I'm wrong. I tell you when right, you're right, wrong. Right. These people have nobody. Right. They're they're all afraid to say anything. All the people, I'm sure they have 15, 20 people around them on a, on a, on right. a daily basis, but the, none of them have the nerve or you know or the courage to say that you're wrong. No, you shouldn't do it this way. They can't because they'll lose their jobs. Right. So that's how these people live their lives for decades, for many, 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 many years. Right. Um. So yeah. My thing is this, uh, this is not some horrible, shocking story. I'm sure Denzel is fine. Although, as several reports pointed out, he never directed an episode of television again, and that was five years ago. Um, so that would tell you that this was probably a pretty negative experience you for him. You actually worked with him, right? Or, or for him or in the... Or no, I just worked on a film set yeah, that he well, was anyway, but Philadelphia, the, you, the yeah, AIDS movie with Tom Hanks. You worked in his production Tom Hanks. or whatever. Yeah, I, I had nothing to do with him. I was very lowly, and it was a long time ago. But um, I... My point is not, oh, this shockingly horrible. And I don't even feel like she should be dragged over the coals. I do think that, um, you know, it needs to be unpacked how she thought whether, let me put it this way. And I tried to think of a contemporary of Denzel Washington's to slot in. And I came up with Tom Hanks, who was roughly the same age as him um, and has a, you know, a roughly the similar career of success. If they brought in Tom Hanks to, to direct an episode of your show, Lady, would you have called Tom Hanks a motherfucker? That's the question. And I mean, that's the thing that you need to unpack here. And I'm not the person to unpack that. But um, it's not just that you were disrespectful to a director. I mean, I wouldn't get upset over that. I'm not even upset over this now. 
I felt we were supposed to unpack this a little bit because we have talked about similar stories in the past. And the one I really want to tie this to, it's not the Tom Cruise story. It's the Matt Damon story, which we unpacked on this podcast a couple weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe a month or so ago. When he... It's a similar story where he just told this story mm -hmm. unprovoked about himself and had no idea that it made him sound like a complete freaking asshole. Uh, it was the one where he was using um, faggot around his children right, and right, tried right, to right. defend it. That's what this is about more than abuse on sets. Because again, I don't think Ellen Pompeo has a history of abusing crew members, right. and that would be a little bit more uh, of a problem. This is her having an unprofessional disagreement with her superior. Yeah. And I'm not really going to like rake her over the coals. Over. It's the fact that she told that story and she yeah. thought it made her sound like this quite, super cool girl boss. You know, it was right. Ugh. And quite frankly, I don't even know if she really said that. I mean, she probably. Well, that's the other thing. Yeah. Did, she, you, did you really say did motherfucker you really to say Denzel? That? She probably said that. Part of my language. She probably said that out loud on the set while he was around right. or, or probably had just left. And he's just, and she's making this well, story. Well, she further told the story that Denzel's wife showed up on the set and she cornered her and started complaining. I'm not talking to your husband right now because I'm really mad. Like, started complaining to. That I believe she said, kind well, of and, like well, jokingly. It's still wrong. It's I'm just still saying. really yeah, wrong. Yeah, I think she's exaggerating the story a little bit to, to sound better which is even worse right um but again you know whatever i'm not here to rake a woman over the coals um but i just thought uh it's one of those stories that are similar to other stories that we've talked about on this podcast or elsewhere so i felt like we should unpack it because this one has to do with a woman being abusive to a black man. I mean, there were other aspects to it that I was like, I need to examine this and make sure I'm unpacking And brought this. up online, not just from my, Oh, know, no, of course not. Us. As it, I said yeah, to yeah. you the other night, I said, um, all I know about Ellen Pompeo is what I've heard black Twitter say about her over the years. And I really trust black Twitter on these matters. And they've been calling her out <laughs> for some time. So um, she has a... a apparently a history of very like white woman ally bullshit where she sticks her foot in her mouth or says these things that just don't come across well. Um, and that's all. And that's really all I know about her. I've never watched right. an episode of her show. So no, I couldn't care less about her, but anyway, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just wanted to address it because we've addressed similar stories. No, I agree that I agree. Now we are dropping it because, and, but we are continuing on to talk about television matters of television yes. podcast because there's been so much red carpet stuff lately that we have not been able to talk about some of the shows that have been uh, capturing our attention lately. And we're just going to run down the list now. We're going to talk about Midnight Mass, and that will be spoiler-filled. Yes. I don't think I can talk about that without talking about the ending, the right. whole nine yards. And since it was it was like the most popular show on Netflix, I think it's safe to say that a lot of people have seen it. Uh, we're also going to talk about Why the Last Man on FX. I, that will be less spoiler-filled, but we are going to... Well, there's not much to spoil because it's an ongoing right. story. They haven't really revealed too much. Um... And I, it's a shame we were not able to, to get on the ground floor of this one. And I wanted to, but they dropped three episodes like the week of the Emmys and the Met Gala. Right. And I could not do, the reason I wanted to get in on the ground floor is because I read Why the Last Man, the comic book, when it came out 20 years ago. And I was really, really interested in, in how they uh, approached the subject matter in 2021. So we're going to get into that. And then also we're going to talk about Apple TV's foundation. Yes. Lorenzo really wants to talk about that. I'm feeling really ambivalent about it. It's the uh, adaptation of Isaac Asimov 
uh, starring Lee Pace and Jared Harris, and it's big, and it's Dooney, and it's very hardcore sci-fi, and we're going to talk a bit about that, but you know what I'm going to talk about now. Yeah. I'm going to talk about my bomba socks because I, I love them so They're much. They're amazing. In they fact, really are. In fact, I am really seriously feeling that I need a sort of autumn refresh of my bomba oh, sock go. collection and get and i should be going for some more autumnal colors so always buy them for christmas i will yeah. I, I that doesn't mean i don't i won't want pairs for christmas but i think i'm actually <laughs> going to buy a few just for fall lots of things can make your workouts hard extra resistance double speed one more mile your socks shouldn't though that's why bomba's performance socks are built to be nothing but comfortable and supportive Bombas performance socks have taken all the amazing innovations that make Bombas the most comfortable socks you've ever worn and added their special Hex Tech performance technology. Bombas performance socks are stitched with special moisture wicking yarn and temperature regulating vents that allow cool air to flow in and prevent overheating. They come with a pillow-like tab to save you from blisters, stay-up technology, a special arch-hugging system, and an extra layer of cushiony comfort on the bottom for the perfect amount of support. If you've heard this podcast, you've heard me rave about my Bombas socks right. and uh, all of that is, that I just read to you was true. They are extremely well-designed socks. They are extremely comfortable socks. They actually feel like they're hugging your foot when you pull them on. They're the kind of socks because they're molded to the heel and there is no seam across the toe. It's almost impossible to put them on wrong. You know how sometimes your socks right, right, get right. all twisted? These are so molded to your feet that they almost always snap into place on the first try, which sounds like a minor thing, but it's a to me, it's a testament to how well they're designed. They are designed they're for well your designed. feet. Yes. yes, they're very comfortable. They're, they're stylish. They're, yeah. Oh, the colors are amazing. I know, they're great. Uh, I've said this several times that... Um, I never cared about socks before Bombas. I mean, like it was something I would just I know. buy. Uh, I never care. I mean, I've always loved underwear, but socks was something that I was like, oh, I'll, I'll get whatever. Not after I discover no. <laughs> Bombas. I mean, my God, my life changed. One of these podcasts, we're going to have to take a picture of my sock drawer <laughs> I mean, to prove that it really is all Bombas. They socks. are incredible. They are incredible, uh, worth every penny. Uh, they're just wonderful socks. Yes, they come in different styles for every sport with specific design features to help you optimize performance and keep you comfortable. No matter what you're doing. And like all their socks for every pair of Bombas performance socks you buy, they donate a pair to someone in need. They've donated over 45 million pairs so far. So go to bombas.com slash TLO today and get 20% off your first order. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash TLO for 20% off bombas.com slash TLO. I sort of stumbled on the finish line there. Okay. Um... So, let's do Midnight Mass first. Yes! Okay, so Midnight Mass uh, just dropped a week or so ago on Netflix. It is the latest horror, and I use that term very lightly, series right. from director Mike Flanagan, who... Um, has directed many things for Well, Netflix, he right? has also given us... Um, uh, the Haunting of Hill House, and which was very well received, and I actually really loved it, and The Haunting of Bly Manor. Um, this is the first original story that he's developed for, although Bly Manor and, and Hill House owed very, very little to the books that uh, inspired their titles. But Midnight Mass is an, an original story on his part. He has been a horror director and screenwriter for years. He didn't just do Netflix. He has a series of movies. He did the... Um, the um, sequel to The Shining that came out in like 2019 with Ewan McGregor, uh, Dr. Sleep. And actually, it was a very good movie. I did not really need a sequel to The Shining. Um, but I it was, that. it's a movie that actually stands on its own. I don't, I'm not sure it reaches the heights of Kubrick's movie, but 
Um, it actually does stand on its own and pays a certain level of homage to the original without stepping on anything. Um, so he's he also did Oculus. He directed uh, uh, an adaptation of Stephen King's Gerald's Game. So his whole career has been in the horror mode, and he has been... Um, he has set himself apart as a director and screenwriter in horror who infuses his stories with a lot of deep character work right. he, and he, deep emotion. He he has a more intellectual, more... Uh, I wouldn't go that far. I th- yeah, I, I would. Uh, approach to his characters, I think. Um, okay. They... They they go deeper in terms of their own demons and 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 everything else. You know, I do think they he explore the characters a little more than uh, uh, than any ordinary horror movie or horror. I think uh, he TV takes, series. and this is why I wouldn't call it intellectual. I would call it thoughtful. All right. I think he takes a very Stephen King approach to his uh, to horror, and uh, King's books are massive. Uh, Tomes, these massive, massive, weighty books of 800 words, because he spends so much time in the heads of his characters. There's so much interior work in Stephen King's horror, and that's what makes it horrifying, is because you are so involved in the inner lives of these characters that you are associating yourself with them, and then when terrible things happen to them, you're terrified. Uh, So... And that's not always done on cinematic or televisual horror. It's not, that's not, a, that's a very literary way of approaching horror. It's a very Stephen King way of approaching horror. And so Mike Flanagan has applied this to his work. And in my opinion, I should start by saying uh, Midnight Mass is getting tremendous reviews. And you really loved it. Oh, I loved every and minute And I of it. really yep. had to unpack for a good week why I just didn't love it. Why it didn't sit, a lot of different reasons why it just didn't sit well with me. There are certain things about it. I'm like, that's just, I don't know what this is. This doesn't sit well. I do want to say, um, Legend of, uh, uh, The Haunting of Hill House, uh, I thought was great. And it was largely great because of the emotional factors of those stories. It was all about uh, trauma within a family right. and, and grown siblings. And I mean, I have a lot of siblings. I don't have trauma in my family, but I have a lot. So I felt like a lot of that was, I could have, um, relate to that. I could relate to a lot of that. Bly Manor, it got very stylized, and he was trying to do an English country house story with a lot of actors who weren't English. Uh, and I, parts of it worked and parts of it didn't. But I remember saying last year, I oh, that was the that's right, that's the podcast that you that I was listening to from last year to make sure that I was all on the same page. Um, I did say last year in a podcast about Bly Manor that the emotional stuff was starting to get too heavy handed for me. Um, that it was, and that. Um, his horror is not horrifying. It's sad and tragic. And it has horror, like there's ghosts or there's horrifying things, but ultimately the stories are very emotional and very sad and tragic, usually romantically tragic. And there was right. a huge romantic tragedy in the in Bly Manor, and there was a huge family tragedy in Hill House. So, and, it, and it's a lot about what they're dealing with. Um, it, all their, the baggage they bring. The, all the baggage and all that stuff and what makes them react to the actual horror. Right. Um, based on what, they, what they've experienced in life. Uh, I think there is a connection there. And I think that's very true. If you think about it, how you react to certain things, how people react differently. Right. Uh, I wouldn't say to horror, but but to, to things that are not explained well or that you can't explain. Right. How people, you know, react to them. Um, I I I love them. I first of all, I think they're so beautifully done. The the uh, cinematography is gorgeous. Yes. Um, the sets are beautiful. The lighting, all that, and it and it does help. I think it's the same thing 
we talked about this with with uh, with the Lord of the Rings kind of st- that changed the industry in in terms of how you approach certain types of movies and shows right. that people didn't pay too much attention to s- certain things because you know with movies like Lord of the Rings it was all about the action and then it changed into pay attention to costumes to lighting to a lot of other things you know mm-hmm. to great acting and blah 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 so i think the same here with with his horror movies or series um everything is so beautiful lit be- beautifully beautifully uh, lit that uh you know you just love everything it just looks good and i think we also talked about this how we we feel i feel that television has improved so much in terms of the visual uh, that it's almost like movies now on TV all right. the time. Anyway, I do like the way he approached his stories. <clears throat> I think the actors in general, they do a very good job. Ooh, honey, no. Don't uh, agree with you on that. That is I, one of my major complaints is that the acting was, except for a handful of characters at the center of the story, and I will say that Hamish Linklater and Kate Siegel and Zach Guilford and Samantha Sloyan, who played Bev Keen, the crazy... Reli- all right, they well, were all fantastic. Well, I said in general, so but you, you I just would named say, four. Uh, yes, but I would say that it was a large cast. Right. And all of the townspeople were mostly terrible. Well, that I agree. Yes, that I agree. Um, they were required to... Uh, because of the story, a lot of them were required to act decades older than they actually were because then they were de-aged in the story. And I would say that the vast majority of them were not up to it. Uh, the one woman who went from f- elderly to dementia to literally being about 29 years old on, on camera, uh, there there was no point at which she was believable as an old woman. And that wasn't just because the makeup wasn't great. The makeup was okay, but none of them, no, none of them were believable. This was one of my um, only concrete critiques right from the get-go. Because like I said, I really had to figure out why this bothered me as much as it did. And that was one of the only things I could settle on. Was I said, well, first off, most of the supporting cast is kind of bad. Uh, agree, they're not that I, great. I agree with that. Uh, but that wasn't the reason. I I accept that. I mean, I, I'm listening because we don't agree. Everything you just said about the show, I'm like, yeah, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. And that's fine. You are giving the majority opinion as far as I can tell. A lot of critics feel the same way that you do, that there's a richness to his work and that there's a, a beauty to his work. And I do believe the, like, the island that setting and everything, the rundown beachfront island setting was beautiful, you know, beautifully done in a in a very sad sort of rundown sort of way. Um, I'm not taking any of that away from it, but, uh, I guess I have to first disengage from thinking of this as horror at all, because that is my number one problem with this. And it was my, one of my major problems with Bly Manor was it's not scary. There's nothing, it's not scary. There are in a, it's seven episodes, I think, or maybe it's six, let's say six episodes. I can't remember. Each of which are now, so six hours of television, and I think there was maybe ten minutes where it was actually scary. True, um, it was all very emotional right, I agree. and mm-hmm. very tear jerky. But I, I am not some hardcore science. I mean, um, hardcore 
horror person, I actually have limits as to what I can watch in horror. It gets to me, that sort of thing. However, when I want to watch it, I want it to be scary. Otherwise, I don't see the point Breeze. to it. See, I, I like very minor yeah, I mean, <laughs> scary moments. Yes, you like to order the mi- mild dishes off the Indian takeout menu. That's yes, you. exactly. So I, that's why I like his approach and his uh, you know, shows and, and movies. Yeah, it, and I think they're for people who don't right really want horror in their horror true um i I, i'll accept that i it's funny this may seem like a really old-fashioned um example and there certainly are newer examples but to me one of the all-time great american horror films is still the exorcist and i will explain why for for me it's part of the reason is that um the second half of the film is truly jaw-droppingly horrifying stomach churning i mean it's 50 years later i've seen it enough times but if you hadn't seen it or if if you've only seen it a few times it's like holy shit the whole last hour of this film is crazy dark crazy horrifying the first 45 minutes of it is all about falling in love with the house because it's gorgeous with uh, the characters because they lead glamour. You know, um, what's her? Ellen Burstyn has this fantastic life as a movie star living in Georgetown. So it's 45 minutes of atmosphere, of falling in love with characters, of understanding their backstory. There's a divorce. The father's not around. The daughter's clearly, you know, disengaged in some way. That's why it works, because it takes a long time for you to get to fall in love with the characters, and then it does not pull back when it's time to put them through sheer hell. Right. And that, to me, is always the perfect... I can use more modern, like The Conjuring, similar example, where you really got to to learn the rhythms of that family, you got to learn the outline of that house, and then it gets gets really dark. Mm -hmm. That's good horror. And even more mainstream example, and it's probably the the best example of this, is Poltergeist. Right. Where you just fall in love with the suburban neighborhood and this quirky little family. You learn all their names and what's going on in their lives. And then it's sheer shit show time. You just named all the all the other movies and shows that I like because of that, because it's not too But they know, all, graphic. when it was time to put them through hell, they put them through hell. Now, don't get me wrong. Here's spoiler. We're getting into spoiler stuff. They put the characters through hell in... Um, in Midnight Mass, Midnight Mass literally yeah. no one survives except for two characters. So, and it is extremely bloody in the last hour or so. So, I'm not suggesting there is no horror, but um, they they all die singing "Nearer, My God" to thee. <laughs> I mean, what? Yeah, what? The whole town gets turned into vampires, and then when the sun comes up and they all sing Nearer My God, after slaughtering each other, after just this insane festival of violence, it was just such a... And it was so typical of him because he's always trying to put these poignant endings on these stories. Um, And it was that blend. He, I will not suggest he didn't really put characters through it. And I will say that one of the things that disturbed me the most about the movie, really, really, really disturbed me, was uh, the Muslim sheriff and his son and the way that story ended. Right. The final shot of them on the beach where they both died. I know. It, it's awful. And it's just, and I don't mean to single them out, but that guy was completely, one of the few completely innocent people in the entire story, and they just destroyed his life. And then... Right. And that was really disturbing. But... 
then everyone sings nearer my god to and i'm like why the, why couldn't you stay on the darkness of that moment why did they all have to be tears streaming down their face right, and they all right. remembered that they loved jesus at the end um this is my problem with midnight mass and why it didn't sit well with me is you said it was because i i'm irish catholic his name is mike flanagan he's irish catholic clearly I was an altar boy. He's talked about this movie in interviews. He was an altar boy. He brought all this stuff to him. We're not, we're, he's a little bit younger than me, but there's a lot that we would have in common in terms of our perspective and backgrounds. Um, and I guess for me, um, I felt like he was adopting a, an attempt to be a little bit cynical about the dark side of religion and how it can be twisted. But at the same, he couldn't go all the way with it. And again, he had them all singing hymns at the end. How much of that series was really loving portrayals of Catholic ritual as someone who grew up with all that stuff. I'm like, wow, he is not casting a jaundiced eye on this at all. He loves this. He is setting music to it. There are montages of hymns. Like at certain there are entire hymns because I kept saying to him, like, I know all the words he's I grew up mm. with all of these hymns. Um that he lets the entire hymn verses, several verses play out. And in fact he will go from people in a church singing to a literal choral right. um t- you know track on the soundtrack. So it's it's so reverent about Catholicism while at the same time telling this absolutely monstrous story about what happens when it gets twisted. I just feel like he didn't follow through in certain ways. I thought it was interesting. I I grew up Protestant. um, So, um, you know, I don't, I don't know much. I mean, we joke about my, (laughs) he didn't get anything wrong as far as I know, except I don't think a a Monsignor would be assigned to an Island that small. Uh, But I, you know, we still joke about the nativity set that I said, who's uh, Gloria. (laughs) Yes, we we bought a nativity set when we first got married or moved in together, and the angel has the Gloria in Excelsis Deo, and he's like, it's Gloria. So every year we put it out, and we call her Gloria. <laughs> anyway, uh, so I thought the whole thing was interesting. Uh, my, my one criticism um, is that, although they're very, very interesting, the dialogues are way, they go on she, for, oh, yeah. for a long time. The speech. The speeches and, and, and then the way they just go on I didn't and get on into that. and on. And you're like, all right, you made your point five minutes ago. They're right. just, they just go on forever. And they really interrupt the, uh, the, the action. Nobody they, talks that way. Right, when right. The one woman went, that part, yes, went to I the agree. sheriff to ask him to investigate the uh, church for things that were going on at the church. <laughs> I burst out laughing. He responds with, when the towers fell, and then it was twenty minutes. Right, it was a very poignant story exactly. of life as a Muslim law right, officer right. post nine eleven and what it meant for his family. And all, you know, most of these monologues. There was a monologue. There were several monologues about what happens when you die, and there were several monologues about faith, and several monologues about addiction. All every major theme and even minor theme in this series got. Five minute monologue. They are interesting and they make you think, but at the same time, nobody talks like this. They don't. People don't talk like that and interrupt. I mean, it. it you know, you go in with some action, with some motion going on. Well, like, that's the like, thing. Like I the, told like, you like that. Like the woman coming to ask ask, right. ask the sheriff to to you know do something about it, and then she's frantic and everything, and all of a sudden she she has to sit down and listen to, to a twenty minute story about nine eleven. Which, yeah, I mean, if you that, you know. 
just frantic and 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 scared and and begging the sheriff to right. To do she something wouldn't about, sit there quietly. She wouldn't just sit there and like, all right, tell me a story. This is I told you this. I pointed this out. This is stylistically fine. You want to give these monologues. His other series had the same quality to it. All the characters in Bly Manor and Hill House had long monologues as well. I think it was way out of control this time. Mm -hmm. And as I noted to you, he never pulls away from the person talking. You never see the person they're talking to while they give these models. And I always am like, are they checking their phone? Did they fall asleep? (laughs) Did they get up and walk out? Because there should at least be a couple reaction shots to these long stories that are being told. Otherwise, you are. It looks like a lecture, just camera fixed on one person who speaks nonstop for five minutes. Um. Just weird stylistic choice. It none of it sat well with me. I think he is a high quality, you know, uh, dramatician, if that's a word. He crafts really beautiful, thoughtful dramas with ensemble casts, and and mm-hmm. they're usually tragic dramas. But I, as a horror director, his last few, and this is not horror to me. This is not. This is melodrama, tragic melodrama that uses tropes hard tropes like vampires and ghosts but never really fully explores i mean no one said the word vampire did you ever notice that in, in no, no one didn't no oh no i don't remember it was a contagion i'm okay. like yeah it's a contagion that makes you bite people and you burn if you're in the sun <laughs> that's called a vampire okay <laughs> they wanted to like hook it up to covid in a certain way religious mania and that you know but to me, it didn't work, and I really am the outlier here, and I understand that. It is, it's got like, I don't know, it's somewhere in the 90% on Rotten really? Tomatoes. I'm wow. pretty sure it's that high. It's good, but it's not amazing. I don't think it's that good. I, I think it really pulls, I think it's really sentimental. I think it really pulls on your heartstrings. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had, like I said, the only characters whose ending bothered me was the Muslim sheriff and his, everyone else. I was like, I'm sorry, you're all dumb. And oh, here's here's what I want to say about. I know it's going long, and I will be quick. This is an example exactly of what is how his approach to religion really bothered me, and it took me so long to unpack this. There's a scene where Bev Keen, who is the uh, outrageous, like, liberal fanatic uh, who has taken over the town, has started putting Bibles in uh, the the on the desks in the in the classrooms and oh, all, right, all right, the ta- right, right. And, and a bunch of townspeople show up and i will note i there was like i don't know 12 people in that room and i believe they said that there were 128 people in town so 10 percent of the town shows up that's a significant uh protest against this action which by the way is illegal you can't do that uh kate siegel who plays the school teacher character is there chairing this meeting and it's all concerned parents about the Bible showing up in classrooms. The sheriff, who is Muslim, uh, is there, and he gives a long impassioned speech about Muslim beliefs and why this is wrong to be inserting religion in the club, blah, 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 blah. And Bev, this obnoxious character, she is like the bad guy in the whole story, keeps interrupting people and running roughshod over people and taking control of the meeting and basically getting people to applaud the idea of um, Bibles in, in classrooms. The school teacher character, played by Kate Siegel, who is supposed to be leading the meeting, keeps trying to interject, but never, mm, and she just, mm. and then it cuts to the next scene, and she's walking down the street with her pseudo-boyfriend in the story, and she's like, I'm sorry, I just had a, you know, I couldn't take any more. I'm like, oh, so you just let this happen. Right. You are the good guy. She is a religious character who was portrayed as the not fanatical person, and you just let a fanatic run roughshod over the law. And you did nothing to stop it. 
And I'm sitting there thinking, you're actually the bad guy here. The bad guy here isn't the religious fanatic. It's the people who let them run roughshod over society. But the show never unpacked that. It just skipped right over it. She just let this thing happen because the story needed it to happen. And um, that was it. And that, to me, solidified my problem with how he's approaching religion. He acts like he's critiquing it when, in fact, he's not critiquing it at all. Mm, Interesting. Anyway, that's my take. And I would love to hear other people's takes because it is like it was a well-loved thing. And we don't agree. Do you want to add anything? Because you did no, love it. That's, uh, uh, I made my points here. Uh, I, I lo- and I'm not trying I to convince like the you, show yeah. in general. Uh, it, it's an interesting subject matter because, as I said, I don't know much about Catholic, the, the Catholic Church. Um, and um, yeah, it was it was great. Uh, um I thought the acting, the main characters did a good job, like Kate Siegel and then Hamish uh, Linklater, yeah. who plays, the fa- who plays uh, Father Paul, right. and Samantha Sloyan, I guess. Uh, she Evelyn. gave a she near Emmy performance. Amazing. Yeah, she, she was very good. So good, especially because you, you don't, well, that's just me, you, you, you don't expect her to turn the way she did in such mm-hmm. a beautiful way as a character. Um, so... So that's what I mean. Uh, they. I also want to ha- uh, single out Rahul, Rahul Kohli, who plays the yeah, sheriff. Yeah, It was he's a good. beautiful, heartfelt performance. That's why his ending bothered me so much. And also, he's super hot. <laughs> it's really easy <laughs> to look is, at him in the he scene. Is, he is super gorgeous. hot. He is gorgeous. Um, anyway, I, st- I would still recommend it. Yeah, I mean, I am not telling people not to watch it. This was my particular series of issues with it. And right. that's fine. We all come at things differently. Um you want to move on to Why the Last Man? Yes. Okay, Why the Last Man is airing on FX on Hulu. And it is an adaptation of a comic book that ran, I believe, for something like 60 issues. It was, you know, devised. It was a full story, mm-hmm. beginning, middle, and end. It's not a superhero story. It is... Um, I always felt... I read the series first back... Of, yeah, first of all... Of course you read the books. Yes, so. I read them. And back in the day, I always felt it was a killer concept for a story. Killer hook. It was a different take on the apocalyptic ending, you know, the post-apocalyptic world. Instead of zombies or anything like that, um, in the original formulation, uh, the story that was told in 2002, all all the men died on Earth. On the same, they just all dropped dead. And uh, there was one man who survived, and the story centered around him. His name is Yorick, and that is why it's called Why the Last Man. It was also a play on Y chromosomes. Because the story was written in 2002, the um, story's writer was Brian K. Vaughn, very celebrated comic book writer and to actually television writer, and he's won all kinds of awards. He's actually a very good writer, but I revisited the comic recently in preparation for the series, and I was shocked at how badly it has aged. Um, it was also, I should mention, drawn by Pia Guerra, uh, a woman. And that is notable because at the time, not a lot of women were writing, were doing comic work. And this is a story where almost where every character is a woman except right. for one. So it was a very female, it should, it ostensibly was a female-centered story. Which again, in 2002, that was a little weird. It was unusual in the, in the comics world, which was very, very male-oriented. Reading the old issues, I realized that the book was way more... It, it centered Yorick in a way that is really uh, it, really off-putting in, in, the, in reading it in 2021. Because you're reading the story and you realize this is a story about women. This is a story about all the women who survived and what they did to rebuild the world after this happened. But every issue was about this guy. And 
that focus in the comic was just a bad idea uh, that hasn't aged well. And not only that, but um, it gave virtually no um, indication that trans people existed, either trans men or trans women. Um, because if people with Y chromosomes are dropping dead, then trans women are dropping dead. And if, um, uh, it also means that the, well, Yorick isn't the last man in the world. He's just the last cis man in the world. There would be plenty of trans men right, walking right. around. It, it would a, change the story dramatically. None of that was addressed yeah. in the comic. Right. Trans, uh, uh, trans women, I don't, I'm not even sure they were addressed at all. The fact that they would have died in this and trans men were, ref- were referred to in some really, really bad ways, like ways that haven't aged well. Uh, there was also a seriously, um, sort of sophomoric attitude about, um, women loving women like queer women or women having sex with women it was very titillated by the idea when in fact I, in an all-female world that probably would not be treated like titillation just it would be treated like the way it is in a prison you know an all-female prison like it's just a fact of life so there was much about it that was very cis male uh the point of view was very cis male oriented when a story like this should not be cis male oriented regardless of whether the character is the main, the, you know, the title titular character is cis male, which it is. So it was many years getting this show developed. It went through a lot of iterations and it finally wound up on, on FX on Hulu. Um, and they've really, really retold the story in a lot of ways. And I'm impressed with how well it captures the tone of the book correctly in the, like the setup correctly. And it, one of the things I really loved about the book was that it really did try and unpack in in a thoughtful way, well, what does it mean when all the men in the world drop dead? What is society when it's all women? What happens to society? And one of the things the book was very good at pointing out was uh, which which parts of the society would be fine because there are plenty of women operating those aspects of society, and which parts right, would right. fall apart. I, think I, I noticed that I haven't I didn't read the book, so that was something that I I thought it was extremely interesting. The fact that women have been oppressed for so long, not not being able to get certain jobs, certain careers, and you know, do certain being things. shut out of certain jobs and careers. Because yeah. they're women. Right. And now all the men are dead. So what do you do with those positions where women were not allowed to uh, you know So one of the things the book unpacked was for instance, and this is twenty years ago, I don't know how true this is now, but it for instance the fact that, you know, um there, when you get into like high level civil engineering, nuclear engineering, yeah, that sort yeah. of thing, like that, there aren't a lot of women at the top levels of those jobs. Where you jobs. have one woman. As Same thing with to pilots, air, yeah. airline pilots, where where it was just like there are only so many women in that field right. at the top level. Now we can talk about why that is, like why culture is suppressed, but it really did unfold all this stuff, like. For instance, there are enough women in government, they're not at the highest levels, but there are enough women in government that the U.S. government could function when, right. you know, 75% of it dies. because there are, And the show actually makes a fairly good point of that. There are enough competent women at the top levels of the military. That they mention at one point that the Supreme Court is still operable. There are still yeah. three women. On they this. do make that point, and, and, which is great. Right, the but they also make the point that they don't have enough women to operate the power right, plants. Right, because, right. So that kind of stuff is fucking fascinating. I think it's amazing. Yes, I agree. When And then you get into certain aspects of, the book did this, and the series is doing this as well, like religious extremism or, uh, you know, what happens to traditional conservative women? 
when all the things that like what happens to the argument of abortion when no one's going to be having abortions in this right, world right, you know right, what i mean right. and these are these women are defined by these how things. much of a voice they're going to have for now on you and know? there's a character who was created for the series was not in the book at all it's she's a brilliant addition she's played by amber tamblin she does a very good job where she yes. plays the former the president died because he was a man uh the president's grown daughter she's She's not really an Ivanka Trump type, although she's very involved in policy. She's very clearly modeled on Meghan McCain. So she's this very traditional, conservative, rather entitled uh, woman who is uh, my father, my father, my father, my father. She injects him in every conversation. And she is concerned, weirdly enough, with upholding Republican values in this world where, you know— um, all the men are dead. Like, I'm not saying you can have conservative values. And there's, there was like, I think in one scene in a recent episode, there was graffiti on a wall that said misogyny didn't die with the men. And it's trying to unpack that idea that, you know, women, there is misogyny in women. And a woman like that is holding on to this idea of male supremacy um, because her whole life has been devoted to it. And she can't stop holding on to those values, right. even when there's literally, literally no point to it at all. Um, the uh, part you had a real problem uh, with the lead character Yurik um, and I just I want to get the guy's name uh, Ben Schnetzer who I'd never heard of before he uh, does a good job I can't stand the character he's great he's great I agree he does a very good job he annoys the hell out of he's me he's supposed to but he's supposed to he's a, he's an annoying character yeah um, I mean the hook of the story is the last man to survive and the hopes of humanity surviving past this all rest on this one guy who is a complete loser and kind of a jerk right just this self this privileged entitled white right. dude in his 20s who is irritating as hell irresponsible as hell and all of these extraordinarily competent and in some cases completely badass women are bending over backwards to protect this complete loser of a person. Yeah. That's the hook. I get it. But it's very hard for me to watch the show without he's such wanting an asshole. to slap him every five seconds. Right. Uh, but... Um, but again, it's the character. Right. Uh, he's doing a good job. I do want to say real quick, he's not uh, like this abusive as That's no, not no. it. He's actually, they're unpacking the nice guy trope. He is, he believes he's a nice guy. He believes he's an ally and everything like that, but he's completely self-absorbed and he's never had a decent job. Privilege. He's, he's privileged. His mother too. was a yeah, senator. Yeah. So um, his mother is played by Diane Lane, who is a senator who winds up becoming president because the entire cabinet dies and, and in the, the line of succession, she winds up becoming uh, president. So that's the hook. That's the setup. I think He's great. I am completely in love with Ashley Romans, who plays Agent 355, who is assigned to protecting him. I've said this several times to you. She's the reason. She's the reason to watch it. She's the reason to watch it. Uh, she, she was the reason to read the book, too. Oh, my God. Her character is amazing. Love her character. She, the actor is, first of all, I can't stop looking at her. She's so gorgeous. Her she's face striking is, as she's hell. She's striking. It's yeah. Just be this beautiful woman. She does such a good job. Yeah. And the character is amazing. Very powerful. Very uh, just intriguing. What just I love about her is... Great character. Yeah. Agent 355 is this high, 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 high-ranking secret agent that almost nobody knows about. In fact, she only, she only answers to the president, and then the president dies, and then she doesn't even know what to do with herself. What I love is that she threads this needle. Um, 
between being this incredibly competent, badass woman and at the same time just barely trying to hold it together because right. this is completely fucked up. Right. And I, I I love that. That's perfect. Yeah. yeah, because you rarely get someone in these sort of apocalyptic stories who does it. There's either right. one or right. the other. Yeah. But yeah. when someone's doing, I am a Both. complete yeah. badass. And I am barely hanging on to my sanity right, right. at the same but time. But I know I have to do this. Right. Uh, yes, exactly. That's what makes her so compelling is because she is constantly fighting this what the fuck is going on feeling. Um, whereas other characters around her, I think, are a little too in typical of like shows like The Walking Dead. They're a little too accepting of the apocalypse. Um, that's it. I... I would recommend it. You had serious problems with the lead character, but you would still recommend it, right? No, I, I, I do. I do. I think the, the concept is incredible. It's uh, such a great idea. It's a great idea. It's a great story. Uh, it's it, not perfect, it, right. but it's good. And the, I, I love the characters. I, I yeah. you know, except for the main character because he he bothers me, <laughs> annoys right. me. Um, but you know, the actor's doing a good job. That's why I'm annoyed. Um. I I love the show and I I'm uh, you I think you watched more than I did right didn't you I did I watched like six or seven episodes because you watched the, the screeners. screeners yeah I I I tend to wait a little bit sometimes because I like to see it on the big screen um so I only I've only watched what three now um but I love it I love yeah. it and I'm gonna keep watching yeah absolutely um yeah so that is highly recommended uh, Midnight Mass is sort of one of us recommends it and the other one I would not I would not tell people not to watch it but. Uh, foundation. That's the final one we're talking yes, about today. Foundation. First of all, great people. You, you. Why don't you go? I've been doing I, a lot of talking. I was interesting, interested in in Foundation because I love Dune. I read the books, and and that's the type of science fiction that I love. Um, complicated, lots of details. You know, you have to pay epic the, and yeah, epic, mystical, and, and big, and empires and things right. like that. I love that. Um, so I was interested. Um, and I do like it. Uh, it, it. It takes a while to get used to it, to, to kind of like know what's going on. Right. I'm not going to lie. Uh, many, many times I was like, I don't necessarily know what's going on here, but I'll keep watching and catch up at some point. Um, but I think the story is interesting. Uh, most of the criticism I've, I've seen online is, be, is that it's too slow. It's taking too much time to get somewhere. Mm. And I get that, but that's true of Dune. It's that very ponderous yes. sort of science fiction. It's very hardcore. And um, you've really got to be into the genre, right. into the Asimov style of, of science fiction. I think it's the type of science, show. Fi- science fiction that it's very hard to uh, present on screen. Uh, I agree. It's the same thing with Dune. Nobody got it right. Uh, it's, not yet. It's conceptual. Yes. Maybe this time they'll get Dune right. But my point is that sometimes stories are, are meant to be read. <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> Not to be I seen mean, on this screen. whole story is built around math. Right. This so, whole foundation, right. this this epic generation-spanning, empire-destroying story is based around a math concept, which isn't really outlined all that well. Right. But, um, go ahead. T- but, but, you love the cast. Oh, my God. Lee Pace, I worship him. And, uh, Jared, He's so beautiful. Jared he, Harris, let me tell you, I worship this man i think he's so amazing um such a great actor love the way he acts uh just oh i love it um uh chernobyl my god he was a god 
as an actor. He's just amazing. So I just like to watch him talk. So I and he's a great character. He plays a great character. Uh, Lee Pace is just gorgeous to look at, and also he can be very mean and bitchy and everything. Right. He plays um, arrogant autocrats. Yes, like, he does extremely well. He was born for it. So great cast. Um, yeah, I'm watching it. Uh, it's dense as hell. Yes. And I have seen a few more episodes than you have. I think I've probably seen five or six. Um, and I can't even tell you where it goes because it gets so complicated. And I- I'm not being dismissive of this show. I just feel like it is a commitment. You really have to pay attention and you're really going to be locked into a very complicated storyline right. as it unfolds. So I'm, I'm looking here. It's based on books. So I it's based know on like a trilogy. I yeah, think. I didn't know that. Um, right. Well, and it deals with some br- like it deals with cloning and it deals with um, empires and societies. And and it, there's just a lot going on in this story um, and generations. Uh I'm not, I'm not saying I wouldn't recommend it, but I do. I would never recommend this to someone who wasn't really in, into that kind of science fiction. Like you really got to be into it. It is um, epic. It is beautiful to look at. I mean, it is expensive to look it, at. It's gorgeous. That that scene where that I, I don't want to get into details because where I don't that wanna, disaster happened. Where that disaster happened. That it was so beautiful. Yeah. I mean, beautiful to look at. I mean, it was but even absolutely sets, gorgeous. Like those yeah. murals that they're painting in several yes, scenes are yes. just absolutely beautiful. The art direction is very beautiful. I'm not super crazy about the costumes, to be honest. I I agree, I agree with you. They're uh, very that, standard. That thing that Lee Pace is wearing, I'm like, what the it's hell is that? Nothing. It's yeah. horrible. It shows off his arms, but yeah, that's but, it. Yeah, but nothing else. I was like, no, we need, yeah. we need to see more. I think they could have done more with the yes, costumes. I agree. But... Yeah, I I feel it's dense. I don't feel it moves particularly quickly. That I agree. Um, and I have not read the books, but I understand that it has deviated significantly from the books in a lot of ways. Like, it really just took them as a launching point to tell a story. I don't know. I, from my understanding is Lee Pace's character is not even in the books, and mm-hmm. he's pretty central to the story in the series. Anyway, I don't know. Check it out. Maybe it's it looks very expensive, but you got to like science fiction to get into you it. And I don't like, mean like yeah. the Star Trek kind of science fiction. No, no. I mean the Dune kind of science I agree. fiction. Uh, but I think I think you I mean give it a shot. And, and yeah, I mean I'm not it, it's I couldn't get into it really because and like I said I think I watched 5 episodes because it it was just too dense for me. But I really do feel there is an audience for this. I don't know if it's enough of an audience to keep the show, a show like this afloat. Right. Because it certainly looks expensive to make. I mean, every show looks expensive now. But it doesn't. This, yeah. It doesn't push my buttons. I'm nerdy, but I'm not that nerdy. Right. Um, and that is it for TV talk yeah, this week. God. We really covered a wide range of topics. Yes. And uh, that's it. We promise we won't take next week off. We have no plans to take any time <laughs> off between now and the rest of the year. More yeah. than likely. Uh, so thank you for your patience as always thank you for listening it really does mean everything to us your support and until next week when we come back with whatever crosses our eyes or crosses our desks take care of yourselves love you mean it bye bye bye